Hello, everyone. Um, and a very warm welcome to this term's Professor of Poetry Lecture in Sleeper King. Um, my name is Professor Marion Turner, for those of you who don't know me. Um, I'm Chair of the Faculty Board here and Professor of, of English Literature at Jesus. Um, it's an enormous pleasure to welcome you all. Um, and the fact that we can now do this lecture in two formats, so we've got our live audience here, but also a bigger number of people can join us on the live stream as well. So being able to do it in hybrid form, I think, is really wonderful. And it's, it's a real pleasure to, that finally we can have Alice back among us in person after the months of everything being online. So I know that Alice Oswald really doesn't need much introduction from me. She is our professor of poetry and one of the most eminent of all contemporary poets, um, having won very many prizes for her many books of poetry, including the Forward Poetry Prize, the T.S. Eliot Poetry Prize, the Griffin Poetry Prize. Her title today is about sleep in Sleep a King. And that immediately made me, and I'm sure many of you who were here last year, remember the Moon Poetry event, which I looked it up, and it was almost exactly a year ago when 500 people were sent a poem, and we all went out and read Alice's poem to the full moon. I think it was on the 30th of November last year, while we were all in one of our interminable lockdowns. And I remember that moment very clearly, going out into the, to the clear night and reading to the moon. I think that the time of sleep, the transition between different modes of consciousness is something that we see in many of Alice's poems and, and collections. Um, I'm thinking particularly of a sleepwalk on the seven, of falling awake and the poem Typhonus in that collection, um, a poem about the, the, the movement between the night and the dawn. I personally teach and research a lot about dream vision and think a great deal about those liminal moments of creativity. And for me, one of the great joys of coming to Professor of Poetry lectures is that I feel they often help many of us to pause, to stand and stare, just to think about how literature comes into being. So without further ado, can we welcome Alice Oswald. Thank you very much. Um, it's so nice to be here, or at least to be half here. Uh, I know I'm somewhere else as well, which is quite a strange sensation, but perhaps appropriate for this lecture, uh, to be half online and half here. Uh, so welcome. And uh, my lecture today is called In Sleep, a King. And it is a sleep talk on the subject of waking up to the accompaniment of Sonnet 87. Uh, so you'll notice that I intend to conduct the lecture in my sleep. And this is because uh, when I begin to write a lecture, I don't really know what I'm going to write about. I sort of drift around and flail around desperately. Uh, and I start by writing about absolutely everything. And then I just kind of chuck things out as I go along. And to my horror uh, in writing this lecture, I discovered quite late on that I was actually writing a lecture about Shakespeare which is, you know, something, of course, one should never really do unless one has studied him for years and years and is an expert. Uh, so I decided that really the only way to approach Shakespeare uh, was in sleep. 
Uh, so I'm going to dream my way through the lecture, and I'm very happy for you all to do the same, uh, to listen with your eyes shut. Uh, in fact, I would much rather that you listen in a state of dreaming than a state of thinking. So I'll begin by reading a sonnet that has always just obsessed me. And I will read it uh, first while you can see uh, the writing on the whiteboard, and then I'll switch that off and you can hear it. Is that something I'm always very interested in, is the difference between a poem when you see it written down and a poem when you hear it. Uh, it is by Shakespeare. I forgot to mention <laughs> Farewell, thou art too dear for my possessing. And like enough, thou knowest thy estimate. The charter of thy worth gives thee releasing. My bonds in thee are all determinate. For how could I hold thee but by thy granting? And for that riches, where is my deserving? The cause of that fair gift in me is wanting. And so my patent back again is swerving. Thyself thou gavest, thine own worth then not knowing, or me to whom thou gazed it, else mistaken. So thy great gift, upon misprision growing, comes home again on better judgment making. Thus have I had thee, as a dream doth flatter, in sleep a king, but waking no such matter. Farewell, thou art too dear for my possessing, and like enough thou knowest thy estimate. The charter of thy worth gives thee releasing, my bonds in thee are all determinate. For how could I hold thee but by thy granting? And for that riches, where is my deserving? The cause of that fair gift in me is wanting, and so my patent back again is swerving. Thyself thou gavest, thine own worth then not knowing, or me to whom thou gavest it, else mistaken. So thy great gift, upon misprision growing, comes home again on better judgment making. Thus have I had thee, as a dream doth flatter, in sleep a king, but waking, no such matter. Here is a curious fact. When Basil Bunting was studying poetry under Ezra Pound, he was given the task of correcting Shakespeare's sonnets. Bring them up to date, he was told. Get rid of the superfluous language. So Bunting produced Sonnet 87 with everything crossed out except the first two lines. Farewell, thou art too dear for my possessing, and like enough thou knowest thy estimate. Very good. What more do you need? A romance is over because one person has higher status than the other and probably knows it. One line of leave-taking, one line of teasing, 
And there you have the whole poem in paraphrase. Farewell, thou art too dear for my possessing, and like enough thou knowest thy estimate. Two lines might convey the sonnet's meaning, but they certainly don't convey its movement. The way its slow financial sleep talk suddenly wakes up and a king passes through the room. That is what you might call the gesture or action or livingness of the poem. And for the past two years in delivering these lectures, I've been trying to describe similar examples, chasing the movements of poems first through light, then through water, birdsong, pebbles, plant forms. They are very elusive. All one ever finds are their effects, what Mandelstam called the rumpled sheets, which prove that poetry has spent the night there. Nevertheless, if I were set to the Ezra Pound task, I would look for the poem's movement. And I think I would be more radical than Basil Bunting. I would reduce Sonnet 87 to the pause between lines 12 and 13, just before the final couplet. Poems are full of pauses, but a true poem always includes one pause which seems to pierce the page, like an opening upon which the language pivots and transforms. And in Sonnet 87, that opening lies between lines 12 and 13, and what follows is altogether altered by it. Thus have I had thee, as a dream doth flatter. That is not iambic pentameter. I don't know exactly what it is. Ancient Greek, Anglo-Saxon, nursery rhyme, night language, sleep talk, magic spell, thus have I had thee, noli me tangere. As I pronounce it, I find myself glancing round to see who disturbed the sound pattern. And now that I have put my ear to the print face, an apparition floats up the same shape as the original speaker's lungs. I am referring to the poem's voice, which is the body's voice, a mist, a breeze, a compression of the air. Yes, there seems to be something at work behind this poem which resembles a Jacobean wind machine, the sort that would have been used to make the storm in King Lear with a man backstage turning a wheel on a length of cloth to produce a whistling, moaning sound. You can turn fast or slow to alter the pitch, and something like that is definitely being manipulated in this sonnet machine. The lungs pump, the throat folds resonate, the tongue and teeth shape instant one-syllable sound moulds, and that is how a king floats miraculously out of the mouth all the more miraculous since he himself is as silent as a photograph and yet constructed out of sound. Mobile, active, ephemeral, gone. Thus have I had thee as a dream. 
Yes, there is a difference between a poem's paraphrase and its voice, and I don't think Bunting's couplet is more than a paraphrase. You might tell me that a sonnet is primarily a written down thing, and that Shakespeare's sonnets in particular make use of the silence of paper. They frequently mention ink and lastingness. They proceed like arcs of thought, not acts of performance. But it is for that reason all the more startling when poems which begin as calculations evolve into declarations. That is what happens in Sonnet 87, a voice grows out of a thought process. A tiny oral poem is summoned into a printed one, and it happens just before the last couplet. Thus have I had thee as a dream doth flatter, in sleep a king, but waking no such matter. When I inhale to voice that couplet, a king floats into view, luminously there, lying asleep, waking up in confusion. I think it was his stirrings that disturbed the sound pattern. This king is really the only visible shape in the whole poem. Lines 1 to 12 are all misted up. I can dimly see charters and signatures through the Latinate words, and I can hear the whisper of leave-taking but I cannot see anything of the person being addressed. Farewell, thou art too dear for my possessing, and like enough thou knowest thy estimate. The charter of thy worth gives thee releasing. My bonds in thee are all determinate. It is semi-humorous that a love poem should proceed like that in the jargon of the law courts and the marketplace, transactional, as if wanting to make terms with the world, and yet, if I were the beloved, I would be offended. It sounds as if the poet has his eyes shut. The whole poem waves about like a sleeper's hand, trying to reach that final word, matter. How to wake up, how to come to and feel about and make contact with matter, how to sign up to the social contract of seeing. That problem presents itself over and over again in Shakespeare's plays. I'm reminded of the king's hand in A Winter's Tale, reaching out to touch a statue and discovering it is his wife, which is really what is trying to happen in Sonnet 87. But there is no such matter, no statue, no wife, no beloved, no waking up, just this king. And there is some trickery in the last line, which keeps the king in view, or at least in earshot. In sleep, a king, but waking, as if the sound would not let go of the crown. Thus have I had thee, as a dream doth flatter. Listen. It is a very twilight, very ambiguous sentence. As a dream doth flatter, can refer backwards to the opening phrase, in which case it means 
as in a dream I flattered myself that I possessed you. Or it can operate forwards, altering the grammar as it goes along. As a dream doth flatter in sleep a king that waking. I.e., I have had you in the same way that a dream flatters a sleeping, waking king. In the second version, the movement from dream to sleep to waking jolts the whole thought out of syntax. It is a sentence made of misapprehensions. It is a misprision. So in spite of the poem's resolve, I exit Sonnet 87 in a misprision of two sounds. One of them is wakefully and bookishly convinced that the infatuation is over, and one of them, the one deeper in, the entrenched, vegetal, oral one, still sullen, still with eyes shut, that one is still asleep, lying in the space between lines 12 and 13, waking not upwards, but downwards, into deeper sleep, haunted. Let me lift the curtain of the sonnet and look at this figure lying in the dark hollow of its making where nothing is visible except thought. It is pitch black in there. It is night. It is nothing. No street lights. The air, according to a contemporary of Shakespeare's, is thick like tobacco smoke and sleep is fitful because of the watches going past, calling out the hours. People have put on white linen smocks for sleeping. They are lying together all over the city, trying to keep warm. The queen lies next to a companion in a carved wooden bed hung with Indian painted silk, or sometimes in a boat-shaped bed with sea-green curtains. Travelers lie next to strangers. Most people sleep on wooden benches or straw pallets with wooden pillows and sheets washed in urine, often with animals nearby. The night is divided into a first sleep and a second sleep, and between them there is an intoxicated time for praying, reading, conversing, making love or making sonnets. The brain flickers. According to doctors, it is affected by vapours coming up from the stomach, which clog the senses and cause dreams. You must be careful to lie first on your right side, then on your left, and then on your stomach, but never on your back. Levinus Lemnius, a Dutch doctor, claimed that so many asleep after that sort lie with their mouths open, their eyes staring, their eyelids unclosed, sleeping very unquietly and without any refreshing or ease, they be oftentimes troubled with the nightmare and falling sickness. It's easy to come this far, to enumerate all the details of Elizabethan sleep right up to the eyelids, and in so doing to provide a list of the fixed things that were pressing against this sonnet. If I were a scholar, I would keep going, researching the visible and audible worlds until I had made an exact vessel for the poem's dream. As a poet, 
I believe it's equally valid to attend to the unfixed things. There is, after all, something else in the room besides furniture. There is misprision. So thy great gift upon misprision growing. There is misprision of one person overvaluing another, misprision of a king concealed in a sleeper waking, misprision of the ears world growing inside the eyes, misprision of the moment resonating in the timeless, misprision of the word misprision wavering to and fro in its meanings. What a word. It means both mistake and dislike. It denotes the space between apprehensions, which is the space where this sonnet comes alive, moving from daylight through doubt into darkness. There is tension in misprision. There is threshold and doubleness of the kind that manifests at dawn or at dusk, when damp comes up out of the earth and matter grows misted. There are mist prisons, moist prisons, things that are almost, things that are missing. All these ambiguities are active in the sonnet's half-light between lines 12 and 13 before it plunges into dream. I'm told that Javanese puppeteers train by running through forests at night at top speed. And I think that would be an excellent, excellent training for poets, since there is this drafty darkness blowing at the language, which poems have to pass through in order to wake up. Some poems seal their pauses and never dip beneath meaning. For example, there's a sonnet in Philip Sidney's Astrophil and Stella, which is structured exactly like Shakespeare's, but without any transformative pause. Sonnet 39 by Sidney. Come sleep, O oh sleep, the certain knot of peace, the baiting place of wit, the balm of woe, the poor man's wealth, the prisoner's release, the indifferent judge between the high and low. With shield of proof, shield me from out the press of those fierce darts despair at me doth throw. O oh, making me those civil wars to cease, I will good tribute pay if thou do so. Take thou of me smooth pillows, sweetest bed, a chamber deaf to noise and blind to light, a rosy garland and a weary head. And if these things, as being thine by right, move not thy heavy grace, thou shalt in me livelier than elsewhere Stella's image see. Come sleep, O oh sleep, the certain knot of peace, the baiting place of wit, the balm of woe, the poor man's wealth, the prisoner's release, the indifferent judge between the high and low. With shield of proof, Shield me from out the press of those fierce darts despair at me doth throw. O oh, making me those civil wars to cease, 
I will good tribute pay, if thou do so. Take thou of me smooth pillows, sweetest bed, a chamber deaf to noise and blind to light, a rosy garland and a weary head. And if these things, as being thine by right, move not thy heavy grace, thou shalt in me, livelier than elsewhere, Stella's image see. This sleep poem, which I do love, but I think it's constructed differently from Shakespeare's, this sleep poem, written about a decade before Shakespeare's, has no delta wave in its meter. The dream at the end happens inside Sidney's head and inside the grace of the line, unlike Shakespeare's, which stops the whole poem and takes over the whole body. Shakespeare's misprision might be close in date to Sidney's, but it is closer in kind to this infrared image of a fox. This shot was set up by Stephen Gill and is one of a series called Night Procession, for which he positioned motion-sensitive cameras in a forest, having first noticed the tracks and stopping places of night creatures. I wish I had such an instrument for detecting the movements of poems. His cameras could be triggered by insects moving over grass, by rain or webs or slugs or gusts, so that often the image is pure misprision, out of reach of all meaning. Three legs of a deer, a mouse ghost running on a branch, foxgloves, or is it nestlings' mouths, hieroglyphs by bark beetles, an eggshell opening, fungus spores, functionless leaves, water not looking at itself. All poems are straining to see like that, moving as close as they can to what they can't see. I have heard of negative capability, which is the phrase Keats used to describe Shakespeare's withholding of himself from his work. But this infrared capability is a refinement we should learn from. A fox doubled in dark water by the low wave light his movement has triggered dipping down to the edge of the unanimal. The expression on this fox's face is just as I imagine the king's expression, caught sleeping in misprision. Misprision, it was originally a legal word meaning concealment of a crime, and a proclamation made in 1582 suggests what kinds of concealments were in the air when Shakespeare and Sidney did their dreaming. Any person wittingly concealing any such Jesuit, seminary, man or priest, or the practice aforesaid, shall be deemed and taken to be in case of misprision of treason. That was Sir Edward Coke responding to the pressures around the monarchy. No wonder it's unsettling to lift the curtain of a sonnet and find a king sleeping in its cavity. It's impossible to know when Sonnet 87 was written, 
There is speculation that Shakespeare started writing sonnets in the early 1590s alongside his first plays, but dates belong to the daylight. You can say when a poem was published and the sonnets were first published as a sequence in 1609, but publication is just the gravestone that commemorates a poem's flat-out form. You cannot measure its gestation. Philip Larkin said he wrote poems in the evening after work and left them after two hours because after that you're going round in circles and it's much better to leave it for 24 hours by which time your subconscious or whatever has solved the block and you're ready to go on. Elizabeth Bishop wrote 17 drafts of her poem The Art of Losing and who knows how many others in her head. C.K. Williams said that his poem The Half took 25 years to finish. Before publication, poems are at their most active, suspended in the memory and livingly interacting with the poet's waking life, sometimes to devastating effect. Ted Hughes spoke frequently about the damage inflicted on him by the Crow poems while he was writing. Like dreams, poems modify our assumed knowledge of the world and are in turn modified by the world they modify. So we have to imagine at least two decades during which sonnets and plays were exchanging images, a whole line of kings moving in and out of Sonnet 87 as if it were their changing room. Methought I heard a voice cry, sleep no more. Macbeth doth murder sleep. Oh, stop there a little. This is the rarest dream that ere dull sleep did mock sad fools withal. Ha, waking or sleeping. Sure, tis not so. Who is it that can tell me who I am? The sonnet inhales all those voices and is animated by them. Imagine Shakespeare falling asleep after writing King Lear, dreaming he's a king, waking, not knowing whether he is himself waking or his dream self. Ha, waking or sleeping, sure it is not so. Who is it that can tell me who I am? Between 1594 and 1606, Lear was changing from the orderly king of the source play into the exhausted human of Shakespeare's play. Exactly the same transformation as happens in Sonnet 87, the language moving from executive command to wounded exclamation. Lear of the source play is a strong magician who frightens his murderers by apparently controlling the thunder. Shakespeare's Lear complains that the thunder would not peace at my bidding. And no doubt the point would have been well illustrated in performance at the Globe, where the storm was made material by cannonballs rolling down copper sheets, drums and squibs, discs of starch shaken in a wooden box and whistling fabrics brushed by a turning wheel. Those are the voices of matter which alter the meter in King Lear. Through the sharp hawthorn blows the cold wind. That is the fool on the heath speaking in the same tune as Sonnet 87. Thus have I had thee, still through the hawthorn, thus have I had thee, blows the cold wind. It is the same weathered sound, the same bareheaded king, sleep-talking in the same changing room.
Thus have I had thee as a dream doth flatter, in sleep a king, but waking no such matter. I often say those lines to myself to wake up or at least to bring to mind what waking up demands. Absolute change of rhythm, absolute change of status. I recently fell asleep while listening to someone speaking and found myself staring at the regular white spots on his suit, each spot backlit as if his body was riddled with small holes and I was looking straight through him to the daylight. But there were no spots on his suit. For a moment, two almost identical speakers passed through each other, each with the same voice. And each day begins in similar misprisions, like an ancient verse form, saying everything twice over. A woman shouts in the street and is instantly translated into dream narrative, where she becomes an owl on a fence post. Sunlight passes over the eyelids. It becomes a red blindfold. It becomes a knife pressed into the eyeball. The pressure increases until suddenly the symmetry is broken and the two worlds assert their difference. The sleep world is ancient, feudal, abusive, immersive, wishful, luminous, spaceless, limitless, upside down. The awake world is constrained by matter. It is very small. You have to get into it through the half inch opening of an eye. To practice that crossing, Salvador Dali recommended afternoon naps in a high-backed Spanish chair with a key clasped between finger and thumb of the left hand and a plate positioned underneath. The moment you nod off, the key falls and wakes you and dreams can be harvested as subject matter for paintings. There are plenty of similar examples among writers. Michaud, the French 20th century poet, was a talented sleeper helped by Meslin. He published a series of short prose dreams, including My King, which reads like a footnote to the sleeper in Sonnet 87. In my night, I besiege my king. I get up little by little and I wring his neck. He regains his strength. I come back at him and wring his neck again. I shake him again and again like an old plum tree and his crown wobbles on his head. And yet he is my king. I know it and he knows it. And of course, I'm at his service. Michaud's sleep goes on and on, increasingly violent and hilarious. But it seems to me that his account is no more than a paraphrase of dreaming. It is the movement from one state to another that is dreaming's poem. What on earth do I mean by that? I mean that the deep structure of poetry is transitional. Unlike music or painting, poetry is a between form, which demands that you occupy two planes of perception at once. It is ear and it is eye. It is fluid and it is fixed. It is matter and misprision, thought and sound. It is one rhyme laid next to another so that two words seep together. It is meters built up in layers so that each phrase remembers or predicts another. It is expression fused with impression, 
observation soaked with intention, imagination made actual by a key falling on a plate. And at the centre of all this, there is simile, which demands the same amphibious discipline as waking up. To think in simile is to dwell in two visions at once, as if you were still surfacing from sleep. Thus have I had thee, as a dream doth flatter. In sleep, a king, but waking, no such matter. It is good, it is formally correct, that Shakespeare negotiates his waking by means of that twilight word, as. Adverb, conjunction, preposition, as always expresses alongsidedness. It cannot exist except in transition, and no representation can exist without a sense of as. Impossible to catch sight of the substance of as, and yet each one of us passes through it every morning. If you know how to wake up, then you know how to read poetry. Iliad Book 10, a king has fallen asleep on a battlefield with his weapons laid out beside him. It is night, ancient Homeric night, which is more like a substance than a time, a fragrant cloud-like thickness. People creep along underneath night or push their way through it Night is oloe, orphnae, destructive, claustrophobic. It is powerful even over gods, even Zeus obeys night. It is death's accomplice. Night darkens a man's eyes when he stops breathing. It is a measure of swiftness. They say Apollo came swiftly down like the night. Night is the oldest of the gods, and it is ambrosia, which means not mortal. It means you might walk outside and catch a whiff of damp earth and honeysuckle, but the matter of night extends beyond that and is essentially unknowable. And this particular night is especially strange because the Trojans have lit fires on the battlefield and they are sitting around them playing flutes in the darkness. And because it has been a good day's fighting, I imagine their music is pretty wild. I imagine long threads of chromatic scales and screams are tangled in the night substance. Rhesus, the king of the Thracians, has just turned up hoping to help defend the city. He has been managing his horses on difficult tracks through the mountains, and he is relieved to have arrived at last. He has no idea what a merciless place this is. He has fallen asleep among his companions at the far edge of things, with his horses standing close by, eating the grass, and his weapons laid down like cutlery and the sound of flutes tying up the air all round him. The entire Thracian army is sleeping, and sleep by the way, is not just a state of rest. It is a creature, a character. It lives on an island. Sleep 
has enough weight that when it moves, you notice the treetops shaking and sometimes sleep settles among the leaves in bird shape, watching its prey. It is that kind of world, that kind of night, that kind of sleep. Then Hippocoon sat up out of sleep and saw the empty space where those horses had been standing and men gasping and bleeding. And he cried out, calling his friend's name so that the Trojans panicked and shouted back and came rushing up to stare at the horrible deed done by those two men before they went back to their ships. The two men in question, Diomedes and Odysseus, have been prowling through the night substance and have found and murdered 12 Thracians, including their king. When Diomedes found their king, he snatched away his life as he lay there gasping, thinking a bad dream stood at his head. But in fact, it was the son of Oinus. I recognize these furnishings. I've seen them already in Sonnet 87. There is the king, the dream, the man waking up, the empty space, the devastation, but I am seeing everything now the other way round. I have caught the king just before he vanishes, peering out through the night substance like a fox, seeing something beyond him. He mistakes it for a dream because he doesn't yet know that he is the dream. He is already changing status from a sleep king to a dead king, and in the Iliad, dreams always appear like that standing above the sleeper in human form. Some dreams are true, some dreams are false, but in Homer, no dream is subjective. They descend from elsewhere, search for a sleeper, stand next to his head, transmit some message, and then move away. They always appear like that, which is why Rhesus fails to recognize Diomenes and is annihilated by similarity like gods or ghosts, dreams in the Iliad are not ideas, but existences. Homer, unlike Larkin or even C.K. Williams, spent at least 500 years on his poems before publishing them. And that prolonged dream time during which the stories went on livingly interacting with the world must have blurred the edge between waking and sleeping. You can see how one state blends into another when Diomedes moves into the space where a dream should stand and takes on the intoxicated lightness of dreaming. Nothing resists him as he murders a sleeping man. It's not certain whether the story of Rhesus is part of a much older rhapsodic cycle about night raids or is part of the later and more literary odyssey which dropped off and fell into the Iliad. Such deliberations only make sense because the poems are so hybrid and hard to define. Like a backwards reflection of Sonnet 87, the Iliad is an oral poem being passed through by a literary poem. At a certain moment, probably in the 8th century BC, scribes made written copies of the text, and although versions went on changing from one performance to another, there was an evolving sense that something ought to stay fixed. The Iliad is a poem that is waking up, feeling about, trying to make contact, with the matter of papyrus. But it is also a poem that is swooning backwards into deeper sleep. The dream of Rhesus has happened already in the Epic of Gilgamesh, 
where Enkidu dreams of death standing next to his head. Here he is in a translation by Maureen Gallery Kovacs. Enkidu's innards were churning, lying there so alone. He spoke everything he felt, saying to his friend, listen, my friend, to the dream that I had last night. The heavens cried out and the earth replied, and I was standing between them, and there appeared a man of dark visage and turned me into a dove so that my arms were feathered like a bird. Seizing me, he led me down to the house of darkness. On entering the house of dust, everywhere I looked, there were royal crowns gathered in heaps. Everywhere I listened, it was the bearers of crowns, who in the past had ruled the land, but who now served Anu and Enlil. Dreams always come in threes. And I have dreamed my way now backwards through deepening sleep to a moment of waking up. I have called this lecture a sleep talk. And my purpose in doing so is not to confuse you, but to honor the manner of the sonnet, which in Shakespeare's hands is never confessional, but fractal, proceeding like sleep talk from one similarity to another in never-ending pattern. Between the similarities, between the poem's rational beginning and irrational end, there is a passing place, a breathing space, a line end, a change of sound, a dawn and dusk and nightscape, a slowed down sleep wave, a zone of half beings, a heap of crowns, a line of kings, mist, moisture, almost, and missingness, a theatrical wind machine, copper balls on metal sheets, squids, voices, two foxes, gusts of darkness, and a forest. None of these things exists or materially causes any other, but they all half exist and affect each other by means of adjacency and resemblance. And that is as close as I can get to the theatre maker who made this sonnet. It is quite problematic. Every writer needs to make terms with Shakespeare, needs to get past him or underneath him or even square up to him. But I can't help thinking there is some enchantment or theatrical trick which keeps him invisible. There are at least seven portraits of Shakespeare, and not one of them is a true likeness. My favourite false likeness is this portrait of an unknown man clasping a hand from a cloud. It was painted by Nicholas Hilliard during Shakespeare's lifetime, but apparently it depicts someone else, which is a pity since it beautifully illustrates the atmosphere of Sonnet 87 the unknowable, cloud-like and superior other, the sky-blue emptiness pressing up against the subject, the misprision of eyes facing forwards and hand feeling upwards. But as far as I'm concerned, the truest likeness, perhaps the only likeness I can make terms with, is the blank space, which is the subject of this lecture. Pure disappearance, 
is Shakespeare's signature. He delights in making a world and then whisking it away, leading his audience blindfold to a cliff which is not a cliff or a statue which is not a statue. He keeps confessing disappearance even as he seems to be professing something else, love or envy or pride or murder or kingship or England. His characters speak emphatically of such things that then suddenly stop speaking and are melted into air, thin air, such stuff as dreams are made of, baseless fabric, not a rack, no such matter, nothing. That seems to me to be the real subject of Sonnet 87, which is why, Ezra Pound, I am reducing it to an empty space. I want the sonnet to confess to the disappearance of its maker, and if you ask me for a title, well, I shall double the disappearance by calling it misprision. say a huge thank you to Alice for that extraordinarily dense and broad lecture. Um, I deliberately didn't write any notes because I was trying to approach it in that dreaming rather than thinking um, space that you mentioned at the, at the beginning. But lots of the, the things that you said, the phrases that you used are, are resonating in my, in my mind. Um, I think in particular, as so many of us spend so much of our time thinking about interpretation and interpretative crusades in, in poetry, I particularly want to hold on to what you said, which was something like, if you know how to wake up, then you know how to read poetry. And that's, I think, particularly what I want to, to take away with me, that, that parallel between the, the transference in our psychic states and the movements of verse. Um, so thank you very much, Alice. Can we thank her one more time? <laughs>